2 and verses 8 through 11. In our consecutive study of uh, the Revelation, we uh, come to this special section in chapters 2 and 3, which contain the letters to the seven churches. In these verses, the ascended and glorious Jesus Christ, whom we encountered in Revelation chapter 1, is the one who, you remember, walks walks among the candlesticks, that is, walks among his church. And he has a word for his church. And in these words, to these seven churches scattered throughout present-day Turkey, we really have an enduring word for the church of Jesus Christ of all time. We looked last week at that letter to the church at Ephesus, the church which had abandoned its first love. We saw a crucial word to us that we might have that first love for the Lord Jesus rekindled, that we would be a church that is marked by fervent love for Jesus Christ. Well, now in the second letter, this is a letter to the church at Smyrna. Again, if you were to kind of make a uh, 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 if you were to kind of go from one church to the next, this would be the next one that you come to, a little further north from the city of Ephesus. But now in this letter to the church at Smyrna, we're going to see a letter to a church which is faithful amidst tribulation. Uh, this letter and the letter to the church at Philadelphia are the two where the church is most commended for their walk uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's now hear... Uh, It's just four verses, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This ends this reading in God's Word. Let's look now to the Lord our God in prayer. Lord our God in heaven, as we consider this, the Word of the sovereign King and Head of the Church, the Lord Jesus Christ, Your Word to Your suffering Church. Might we indeed be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Might You give us grace, O Lord, that we would apply these words in the day in which we live, that we indeed might be those found faithful even unto death. We pray this earnestly. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The date was February 22nd in the year 156 
A.D. A pastor by the name of Polycarp had been pursued and finally was tracked down in a hiding place by those who were uh, pursuing him. Polycarp himself made no attempt to flee, but instead offered food and drink to those who had taken him captive. When they asked him if he had any special requests before being martyred, he asked for two hours of prayer. Those officers granted him his request, but then bound him and took him some two weeks later then into an amphitheater where he would be put to death before thousands of people. The chief magistrate or governor of that province spoke to Polycarp in that amphitheater. And he said to him, Polycarp, I will have respect for your old age. Polycarp was 86 years old. Swear just once, he says. Swear just once by the genius of Caesar. That is, swear with Caesar as your God and as your witness, and I will immediately release you. To those words, Polycarp gave his reply. And they are words which have lived in infamy. Eighty-six years, he says, have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Well, the magistrate replied and he said, Well, the wild beasts are ready. If you refuse to swear by Caesar, you are going to be thrown to them. To which Polycarp answered, Bid them be brought. The magistrate at this point was furious and he responded, Well, as you despise beasts, I give you one last opportunity to change your mind, or else I'm going to destroy you by fire. But Polycarp continued to refuse to recant. He was brought to the stake. And before he was fastened there by cords, Polycarp said, I have one request. Leave me unfastened, for I will die voluntarily for my master's sake. And the captors left Polycarp, this 86-year-old man, unfastened as they kindled the fire. Winds drove the flames away, prolonging Polycarp's agony, also giving him more time to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And over those, that wind and those flames, Polycarp then cried out, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of Thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of Thee, I thank Thee that Thou hast thought me worthy this day, this hour, to share the cup of Thy Christ among the number of Thy witnesses. One soldier who heard these words became so angered then that he took his sword and pierced this old man who had refused to run from the flames of death. And Polycarp at that moment entered into his eternal reward. The martyrdom of this ancient pastor of the church, Polycarp. Now what is striking about Polycarp is that he was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. And his martyrdom occurred about 60 years 
after the Lord Jesus gave this message, this letter's message to the church at Smyrna. Almost surely, Polycarp was a young man in his 20s. We're told he was actually ordained as a pastor by John himself, by the Apostle John himself. And so surely, Polycarp was among those who first heard this letter to the church at Smyrna. And it was this letter, surely, that strengthened him and enabled him to die a faithful martyr's death. And what Polycarp endured is what Christian after Christian throughout the history of the church has endured for the sake of Jesus Christ as well. And so it is this letter, dear friends, that will enable us, as we look at it today, to stand by God's grace in the same way that Polycarp did, amidst any suffering that is brought our way, that we would stand faithful even unto death. I want us to consider this letter of the Lord Jesus to His church under two different heads. First of all, we're going to consider Christ's suffering church. Christ's suffering church. And then secondly, Christ's strengthened church. Christ's strengthened church. First of all, in our passage today, I want us to consider Christ's suffering church. The letter here is written to the church in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was one of the great cities, like Ephesus of Asia Minor. In fact, it competed only with Ephesus for the title of the first city of Asia. It was located on the western coast of Turkey on the Aegean Sea. It boasted, like Ephesus, a great harbor. But unlike Ephesus, this city still exists today. It's the city of Izmir in Turkey. And even today, it is a large and a prosperous uh, Turkish city. The city of Smyrna was a very faithful ally of Rome. It supported Rome, even before Rome's greatness. And it was a city then that was marked by emperor worship as well. The city had built a large temple to the emperor uh, Tiberius. And so its attachment to Rome was not only political, but religious as well. The idolatrous worship of the emperor was part and parcel of being a good citizen in the city of Smyrna. Well, it was in this city, likely during Paul's third missionary journey, when he ministered through the whole region, through the city of Ephesus, it was in this city of Smyrna that the gospel took root. People came to faith in Jesus Christ, and... Uh, they confessed Christ. And they even had to suffer for Jesus Christ uh, in, uh, in this city. It was a place where they were greatly persecuted. And that's described for us so clearly uh, in these letters. To be a Christian in the city of Smyrna was to undergo great suffering. He speaks of it in a number of different ways. First of all, verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. That word tribulation really refers to serious trouble. Leon Morris uh, describes it as the burden that crushes. They were under a kind of 
crushing burden continually of affliction. But it's affliction that took the form of poverty, it says here. And in the Greek, there are two different words for poverty. This is actually the stronger of the two words. It refers to extreme poverty. Uh, to those who have nothing at all. In this very rich and prosperous city of Smyrna, those who were gathered into the church were those then who had become extremely poor. And we're not given the reason for it here, but we can understand it uh, very clearly. Why? It would have been that Christians in this city refused to engage in the kind of civil religion that was demanded of all citizens of Smyrna. And so when these Christians refused to sprinkle incense over the bust of Caesar, and they refused to put upon their lips those words, Caesar is Lord, it had extraordinary ramifications for their lives. They were socially cut off from the city. If they were merchants, others would have refused to trade with them. Their families would have said, I want nothing to do with you at all. As we're going to see even, some were put in danger of imprisonment and even death. So to simply have Jesus Christ as your first allegiance rather than Caesar was to throw yourself into the most abject poverty. That's what they were faced. But not only was it tribulation and poverty, they also were the recipients of slander. Okay, it says that in verse 9, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, the only people in the city of Smyrna who did not have to worship the emperor were the Jews. They were given a kind of pass. And for a long time, Christians were sort of protected under the umbrella of, of the Jews. But the Jews, from whom many had converted to Christianity, were no friend of this new, as they saw it, sect of Christians. And so what they began to do was to tell tales. They slandered the Christians. And they began to speak maliciously against them. Uh, not only accusing them of being politically divisive and upsetters of the peace, uh, where there's evidence in the early church that Christians were often accused of uh, being cannibals. Uh, they were accused of, of, uh, uh, of, of um, killing children. They were accused of uh, all sorts of, of wild tales. And these things would have been spread, these rumors spread about the Christians by the Jews to the authorities. And for this reason, uh, the Christians would have been even further uh, cut off, snubbed. And as we read here in verse 10, uh, some of them were thrown into prison, and even others were going to face death. And that's what we see in verse 10 when it says, to be faithful unto death. It doesn't mean simply that you need to be faithful until that time you're, you're going to die but that you need to be faithful even if it means because of your faithfulness that you are going to die. And that's indeed what the Christians in Smyrna were feeling. Well, dear friends, what was happening in Smyrna is not an isolated incident in the history of the church, but the very 
kinds of pressures and suffering which they faced has been one of the marks of the church throughout all of uh, the ages. Not, not every form of persecution facing every local church in exactly the same way, but the things which this church faced are the kinds of things which are faced in different settings, in different parts of the world throughout the history of the church, no less today than at any other time. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there are more Christians today who die for the faith than at any other time in the, in the history of the church. But if we were to go throughout the world, we would see that there are many places in this world where you are not allowed openly to identify with Jesus Christ. And you are certainly not allowed to try to evangelize or witness about Jesus to somebody else. In many places in the world, to become a Christian is to cut yourself off from the possibility of a university education. It's to cut yourself off from the possibility of livelihood. It's perhaps even to go to prison or even to be put to death for the faith. In many places, people have to risk their lives in order to keep just a few pages of the Bible that they might read it. In other places, to become a Christian is immediately to be ostracized in society and cut off from your family. To lose any social connections that you had. To be a Christian, often throughout the world, and certainly in the West where we live, is to be mocked and maligned, to be made to feel like you're from some other century, to be made to feel like you're out of place. There's a kind of civil religion that dominates American society even today. It's a civil religion of tolerance for all things. A civil religion of sexual liberty. A, a civil religion of... Uh, of, uh, uh, of, of a kind of... Um, just ex- acceptance of, of, of all things, of, of a, a, a maligning of any kind of absolute statement that might be made. And dear friends, if you don't walk according to the standards of this civil religion, you find yourself not only out of step, but you find yourself in many ways cut off. People lose their jobs uh, through... Uh, through this, they are maligned in the workplace. And Christians, even today, are often spoken ill of. Christians are considered the ones who are hateful and intolerant and bigoted, who are self-righteous, concerned to lift themselves up rather than others. And in the midst of all of that, the very things that the Christians most believe, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the love of God in Christ, of Christ crucified for sinners, all of that message is lost in the world. We are maligned and often slandered. But the point of this message today, dear friends, is when you feel that way, realize we are not in a unique situation. This has been the lot of the people of God. In fact, this is the ordained lot of the people of God through every age of the church. And the question is, are you willing to suffer for the name of Jesus? Jesus speaks that there is a cost involved in becoming a Christian. 
Are you willing to count that cost? Like these Christians in Smyrna, to be willing to suffer some level of discomfort, of lost opportunity for the sake of of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to give up certain things. It's to give up a portion of your income as you tithe for the work of the kingdom and the church worldwide. It's to give up your time and your energy and your talents in serving the church rather than spending it on all sorts of other things that you might otherwise spend it upon. To be a Christian is sometimes to be given up a certain career opportunities because uh, you put uh, uh, certain gospel priorities in place. To be a Christian is to give up much, often for the name of Jesus Christ. And there are pressures that are going to be brought upon you. And the question is, are you willing to bear that cost that comes with following uh, Jesus? And I think one of the things that has been most helpful to me as I face those temptations to conform to the world around me and to downplay my Christianity so that I don't have to suffer. When I face those temptations, one of the helpful things for me is to remember, Rob, I say to myself, Rob, there are Christians who have given their lives for these things in the past. How dare I compromise in order just to make my life a little bit more comfortable? There are other soldiers on other battlefronts like Polycarp and like Christians throughout the ages who have said, I'm not going to compromise, but be faithful unto death. How dare any of us give up the fight in our day and compromise our allegiance to Jesus Christ? I simply ask you, are you one who is willing at any cost to be counted as a Christian? I think sometimes that, that, that young girl um, do you remember the, the Columbine school shootings? It was one of the first, if not kind of the first, and it's just this whole uh, uh, torrent of, of them that have occurred over the last 20 years or so. But a, a girl who was asked at gunpoint if she was a Christian, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I simply ask you, what would you answer if it became that question? Your life or your allegiance to Jesus? And a young girl was given the grace and the strength to confess Jesus Christ, even at the cost of her life. When it comes down to it, in a thousand different areas, where the question is, your allegiance to Jesus or your comfort, your allegiance to Jesus or any number of things, even down to your life, which would your answer be? The message to them is to be faithful even unto death. That's what we see in the church in Smyrna. First of all, the suffering church, Christ's suffering church. But now, secondly, I want us to consider Christ's strengthened church. Because the ascended Christ indeed gives a message to this church at Smyrna. And you'll notice it's not just simply a message of, well, I'm sorry that you're suffering in this way. Sometimes... It's all that we do is kind of a message of, of sympathy. But rather what the Lord Jesus does is He brings before their eyes certain biblical realities which should strengthen them and support them in the midst of suffering. And He tells them, verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't downplay the suffering. 
But he says, as you face it, do not fear this suffering. Rather, be faithful unto death. And you want to say to him, Lord Jesus, okay, I want to do this. Now, why? How can I do this? How can I not be afraid? How can I be faithful unto death? And he gives us a number of biblical truths that enable us to do this. I want to point out five different things in the remainder of our sermon today. Five different biblical truths. Five different reasons why we must not be afraid but be found faithful in the midst of suffering. And the first of those is this. It is that the Lord Jesus sovereignly controls all of your suffering. The Lord Jesus sovereignly controls all of your suffering. You will remember that each of these seven letters begins with Jesus, the author, being introduced in language that reflects some aspect of the vision of the ascended Christ that was described in chapter 1. So it uses the language of chapter 1, and it uses some portion of that language to describe the ascended Christ that is particularly fitting for the church in which this letter is received. So what is it for the church in Smyrna? Look with me at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last. The first and the last. We ran into that language several times in chapter 1. Okay, The first and the last. Both God the Father and the Son were described as being the first and the last, or the Alpha and the Omega. And what did that language represent? Do you remember? Well, it represented... Christ's eternity and his sovereignty. He is the beginning of all things. And it is Christ is the one toward which all history is leading. And so if the Lord Jesus Christ is this one who is before all things and in whom all things consist, and if he is the one toward whom everything is moving in its consummation. What does that mean? Well, it means that your suffering, dear friends, is under the sovereign power and control of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not out of His hands. He is the first and the last. He controls even the persecution that is brought against His own people. And that's why He says in verse 9 to these people, I know your tribulation. He knows it. I know your poverty. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know these things. It's all under my control. Nothing has caught me by surprise. He's the one who yet sits in the heavens. And in fact, the Lord Jesus goes on to tell them exactly what's going to happen. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. He says, All of this is part of my plan. None of this is going to catch you by surprise. In fact, I'm going to tell you all about it ahead of time. You know, I wonder if the Lord Jesus today were to give you a detailed account 
of the exact kinds of tribulation that you would experience over the next five years or ten years or maybe for the remainder of your life. That would be a hard thing to take on the one hand, right? I think we'd kind of view it as a God's mercy that sometimes he, he does it little by little. But do you know, even if he were to tell you, like he did in this church in Smyrna, if he were to give you a detailed account of all the tribulation that you are yet going to face in your life, do you know that in reality, there are still loads of comfort to be found in it because it means that every last thing that you are going to face is under the sovereign control of King Jesus. And there is not a thing that comes into your life that has not come from His hand. And you know, He does know. He knows right now everything that you're going to face. Everything. Nothing catches Him by surprise. It's in His hand. That's a comfort. That's an extraordinary comfort. I can't think of a... More wonderful comfort for God's people than that. You know, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, I think, is the most hated doctrine among unbelievers. But for believers, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is the sweetest doctrine that there ever was. The world is in His hands. King Jesus is on His throne. He sovereignly controls all of your suffering, whatever it is. Second thing to remind us of is this. It is that the Lord Jesus has a purpose in your suffering. The Lord Jesus has a purpose in your uh, suffering. Uh, Look with me at verse uh, 10. There it says that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. He acknowledges that there's a real devil, real Satan. And that the devil is at work trying to persecute God's people. And that the devil actually has a great ambition and great goal in the persecution that he brings into the lives of the church. What's that goal? Well, the devil's goal is to destroy the church. But the good news is is that the devil himself is under the sovereign control of King Jesus. And King Jesus has a higher purpose than that. And his purpose is to actually strengthen the church through times of suffering. And do you see that? He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? That you may be tested. He wants to destroy you, but I have a higher purpose. It's actually so that your Faith might be tested. It's a test of your faith. That's why. And Christ's purpose in testing us is actually to make our faith stronger. He brings us through affliction so that we will be weaned from the world and we will learn to trust God alone. It's just like if you go to the gym and you work out. How do your muscles become stronger They come stronger through periods of resistance, okay? If you're like me and you just sit at a desk all day and do that kind of thing, okay, they don't become stronger through that. They come stronger through resistance. So our faith becomes stronger through periods of resistance and affliction. When the test comes to us and the Lord says to us, 
Well, which do you love more? Do you love your possessions more or do you love me more? Do you love your ease and your comfort? Do you love popularity? Do you love fitting in? Or do you love me more? One of God's purposes in the Christian suffering is to test his faith. And friends, that can radically change our perspective on the suffering that we face. When things turn against you, instead of getting depressed or simply getting angry at those who are causing the suffering, remember, first of all, that behind all of the human players in in the drama of your suffering, behind all of those human players, on the one hand is Satan who has malicious intent, but even behind Satan stands a sovereign Lord Jesus who is using all of that for the testing and the strengthening of your faith. Romans chapter 5 is the key verse here. Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 and uh, uh, 3 and 4. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So our suffering has a purpose at the hands of King Jesus. Thirdly, all suffering is but for a short time. The third truth is that all suffering is but a short time. Sovereign Lord Jesus knows exactly how long they are going to suffer. He says, for ten days you will have tribulation. Now I believe that that number, like most of the numbers that we find in the book of Revelation, is meant to be taken uh, figuratively, not literally. He's not saying literally it's going to be ten days, but rather he is saying that your tribulation has an ending point. It has been established by God's perfect plan. What you're going to face is no more or no less than what He has ordained. It's, notice it's ten days. It's not ten weeks, ten years. It's going to be of short duration. Some commentators have even seen in this an echo of Daniel chapter uh, 1, in which Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were, who, by the way, were examples of the kind, very kind of endurance that the Christians in Smyrna were called to, but in which those three, Daniel and his three young friends, were tested ten days, chapter 1, verse 14, by eating vegetables rather than the food dedicated to the idols of Babylon. And they had refused to call anyone else Lord but the one true God. And what's one of the messages of the book of Daniel? But that the Lord vindicated His servants who endured these trials and remained faithful even unto death. Well, the Lord Jesus says the same to you. Whatever suffering you are enduring, it's but ten days. It has an ending point. We find the same... Emphasis uh, in many different passages in Scripture. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, in which Peter wrote to persecuted Christians in Asia Minor some 40 years before these letters were written. And he says there, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. For a little while. That's it. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul writes there, For our light affliction, 
Now, friends, in our eyes, Paul's afflictions were not light, okay? Read his accounts in the book of Acts. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was uh, chased. You just go on and on, okay? Paul says, okay, let's summarize these afflictions. Our light affliction, which, are, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In the midst of suffering for Jesus' sake, We need to say, as he says to us, it is but for a moment, it's but for a moment, then that eternal weight of glory. Fourth reason, fourth reason that we should endure suffering and remain faithful to the end, it's this reason, it's amidst suffering, you possess spiritual riches. Did you notice that in verse 9? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He speaks to this church which suffered from, again, abject poverty. And he says, you need to remember that in reality your spiritual condition is rich. Joel Beakey puts it this way. He says that the one who allowed the Spurnian church Uh, to sink into poverty now encourages them with his exceeding riches in grace. He reminds them that they actually in Jesus Christ are rich, rich beyond description, rich in his grace, rich in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, rich in the love of God, rich in their union with Jesus Christ, in the forgiveness of their sins and their adoption into the family of God, rich in terms of their eternal inheritance in which all that has been given to the Son is now theirs in Jesus Christ. And we could preach a whole sermon, couldn't we, on the spiritual riches that we have in Jesus Christ. But the point is, when you are suffering, that's what you need to focus on. Yeah, you may be poor, but you are rich, he says. Don't forget you are rich in Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews who slandered them, he says, they're not rich. I skipped over this earlier, I meant to mention it, but he calls them even a synagogue of Satan. He says, they aren't really the people of God who are not bowing to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, in reality, are doing the the work of Satan. They're not the rich ones, even though they seem to be more powerful, certainly in Smyrna but rather this small, suffering, poor group of Christians are those who are exceedingly rich. Well, the fifth and final way to encourage our faith amidst suffering, not only the sovereignty of King Jesus, okay, not only Jesus' purpose in our suffering, not only the short duration of our suffering, not only the riches that we have though we suffer, But number five, the fifth thing that we need to be telling ourselves continually as we face the suffering of this world is this truth. That a believer's suffering always results in final victory. A believer's suffering always results in final victory. We see this in verse 8. The words of the first and the last, the one who died 
and came to life. The people of Smyrna were being called to be faithful unto death. And what they are reminded is that they had one who went before them, who himself was faithful. Amidst the mockery and the jeers and rejection of this world, amidst the painful and shameful death of Calvary's cross, he went to that place of death. That's where Christ, our captain, went before us. And we need not be afraid to go there with him. Why? Because on that glorious third day, he rose victorious over the grave forever. And our King Jesus now rules and reigns from a position of power at the Father's right hand. And the promise is that if you are in Jesus Christ, where Christ is now, you also will be. That to depart from this body is to go and to be present with the Lord. And on that glorious day of Christ's resurrection, our bodies are going to be raised in power just as His body was. And are going to enter into eternity in glory. And we need to keep that future looking perspective all of the time. That no matter what I am called to suffer for Jesus' sake, He is risen and I'm going to be risen like He is. And so that's why he can say then in verse 10, these things, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It's the crown which consists in life. Eternal life. I'm sometimes amazed at how much athletes will endure in order to gain an Olympic medal, championship trophy. I mean, to, to be at that kind of level of athletic ability, you, you devote your life to it. I mean, those are for years and years. You give your life to that game and trying to succeed at that game. And I love sports. There are good things in sports. But dear friends, I've sometimes thought, so finally, after all of those years, they get that Olympic medal draped around their neck. They hold their championship trophy. I wonder how many of them after that, the next day, stop and think, that was it. I did all this. For what? And those are the ones who actually win. There's loads of them who put in the same effort and never get the trophy. They never get the medal. For this. Well, dear friends, there's a promise that is given to us that if you are in Jesus Christ... For every single believer in Jesus Christ is going to be rewarded on that day by King Jesus Himself with a crown of life that is never, ever going to fade away. Never once are you going to say, was that all? <laughs> but you're going to be saying, wow, I has not seen nor did ear ever hear the things which the Lord has laid up for them that love Him. Eternal crown of life. I can't begin now to even to speak of the glories of that day. And I just simply ask you, will you keep that day in your sights? The one who conquers, he says in verse 11, will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, the first death is our physical death. The second death is an eternal judgment in hell. That's what it is. That's what he's saying here. If you are in Jesus Christ, 
you will escape the terrors and the penalties of an eternity under the judgment of Almighty God in hell. And you will receive eternal life. Is that not motivation to endure whatever it is that God puts in our ways? Are you going to be tempted to, to give in? Are you going to be tempted to put your own life, your own comfort, your own popularity ahead of your confession of Jesus Christ? Well, remember these things that we have spoken. And might it be that in this congregation there would be many who, like Polycarp of long ago, will be able to say, my Lord has been faithful to me these 86 years. How could I possibly blaspheme His name now? And whatever temptations and whatever trials that you are found in, will you be one who is faithful unto death like Polycarp of old? Will you hear this message that the Spirit has given to the churches? Like that 20-year-old Polycarp sitting in that congregation hearing these things, will it take root in your own life so that when the moment of trial comes, you might still be found faithful? Willing to suffer anything for your Lord, your King Jesus. Let the Lord help us to be found faithful even unto death. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for this word of the ascended Jesus unto his church. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would take it to heart and that we would be those who do not fear whatever suffering and trials come our way, but that we... And indeed, the church throughout the world might be found as those faithful unto death. Bless this word to our soul's benefit. And be glorified as we now come to eat and to drink at the Lord's table, remembering the death of Jesus Christ for us. Might we find, even in this supper, a moment of recommitment unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we, prepare, as we respond to God's word preached and prepare as well for the table today, we're going to sing hymn number 300.